Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's January the 19th, 2023. Just back from the DLD conference in Munich, Europe's top tech event of the year. Very interesting event, dominated by two things, uh, the crisis of the planet um, and the rise of AI, uh, artificial intelligence, and its challenge and implications for us as human beings. I did a panel on a call for human-centered AI, and I was, have to admit, uh, rather confused with what human centered AI should and could mean since AI is supposed to replace us in some uh, odd way. Uh, one of the people on the panel, professor of computer science from Stanford suggested that the human brain uh, was the most complicated thing in existence in the universe. And I'm not convinced by that. I'm not sure I know enough about the universe to suggest other more convincing um, uh, or more complex things, but certainly some of the stuff seen through the web telescope, I'm guessing, and more complex than the human brain. Uh, meanwhile, John Thornton, who was at the event, one of uh, one of the best viewers of technology, writers on technology, the tech correspondent for the FT, writes about um, how we're increasingly able to talk to animals. Uh, he listened to uh, a speech by Karen Backer, um, Canadian anthropologist and, 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 and tech expert. She's been on the show about how we're going to be able to um, talk to animals and how animals will talk to us. Uh, we're learning their language. They're learning ours through digital technology. What it all suggests is increasingly the thing up for grabs, the thing that we're not quite sure about, is the notion of humanity itself, what distinguishes us, what dis whether we are special and how special we are and whether we will remain special. And that is the subject of a new book, which is just out, The Revolt Against Humanity, Imagining a Future Without Us, um, written by uh, Adam Kirsch, the New York-based uh, uh, cultural writer, philosopher, uh, and uh, Adam is joining us now. And as I suggested to Adam beforehand, this is the real Adam rather than the virtual one. How can you prove, Adam, that you're for real? You know, it's a good question with the chat GPT being in the news so much. Uh, it sort of raises a lot of the questions that the Turing test was was designed to answer. If you're having a conversation with a chatbot and it responds exactly as a human being would in, in similar circumstances, how can you say that it's not conscious? On what basis would you say that it's not a person, not a mind in there? Uh, ChatGPT isn't, isn't at that level yet. It's not quite ready to replace us, but it does get into uh, some of these problems that were once in the realm of philosophy or science fiction and are now increasingly looking like they're gonna be uh, problems that we have to solve in the next months or years ahead. Adam, uh, for people uh, not watching, uh, you have very thick, dark glasses. They're not so dark. They're black glasses. Um, uh, I'm guessing if you were an AI that they would have given you more stylish glasses. Is that fair? I don't know. It depends on, on who was the designer for this. So is your book, um, 
It's very brief. It's, as I suggested, refreshingly brief. Uh, I don't think any book should be longer than about 70 or 80 pages these days. Is your book simply an observation or is it a defense of humanity? And how would you even define this word? It's such a slippery word. Well, my book, which is, it is a short book and it's in a series called Columbia Global Reports, which is really reports. It's journalistic. So what I'm doing here is reporting on this idea, which I'm calling the revolt against humanity, and looking at some of the thinkers and writers and activists who, in various ways, are working uh, against the idea of humanity, against the idea that humanity is a, an exceptional or privileged creature on the planet, that we deserve to rule the planet, that we will continue to rule it. Uh, and there are challenges to that idea coming from all kinds of areas and directions, uh, some of which are not on the same team, people who I think would not think of themselves as allies end up converging on some of the same basic beliefs and principles, uh, in particular transhumanists who want to sort of transform us to get beyond humanity and radical environmentalists, which, which I call in the book anti-humanists, um, who think that the Anthropocene is such a disaster that humanity has to be dethroned or possibly abolished altogether. There's a long tradition, though, Adam, of anti-humanism, isn't there? Um, I mean, one thinks of the Marxist, the French Marxist philosopher, if that's the right word, Althusser. It has a certain intellectual cachet, a certain seductiveness, because no one quite knows what it means. How can a human be against humanity? Right. And I start out in the book actually talking a bit about Foucault's famous uh, passage where he talks about uh, the image of man being like a picture drawn in the sand on the edge of the ocean, which will be erased by the tides. Um, but I think what's different here is that there are many different ways that you can conceive of humanity. Humanism is often thought of as a sort of you know intellectual cultural perspective or, or belief system. And Foucault's idea and the postmodern idea was that there are lots of different ways to imagine what it means to be human, that we're not confined to just one traditional way. What I think what we're seeing now that's new is the idea that we don't need the species homo sapiens to exist at all. In other words, there are reasons that we as moral agents uh, or as rational beings might prefer a future in which human beings no longer exist. Whether that means that we're going to be replaced by an artificial kind of mind or some species that we give rise to, which is superior to us, or that we sort of seed the earth and, and the ground and the universe back to animals, plants, even stones and water. Uh, and there are thinkers who are sort of trying to understand what such a world would be like. Would there be anything in it like consciousness? Uh, would there be anything observing what goes on in the absence of human beings? I think the traditional idea in Western thought since, since Kant is that we are the agents uh, in the universe. We're the only moral agents. We're sort of the observers for whom everything is done, for whom everything makes sense. What if we disappeared? Would there be other kinds of observers? Would the stage of the universe continue in other kinds of minds? Oh, I, you know, I don't want to get that Stanford computer science professor into trouble. I can't even remember his name, so I won't mention him. But is he right to suggest that we are more complicated than most things? Is there anything special about us, Adam, do you think? Well, I think that we're definitely, our brains are definitely extremely complicated, but the question is whether it's a matter of kind or of degree, whether the difference between the human mind and other kinds of beings is absolute or metaphysical in some way, there's a gulf that you can't bridge, or it suggests that our minds are very, very complicated, in which case you could make a machine that's equally complicated, or maybe there are other things in existence that could approach it already. 
Um, the number of connections in a human brain at any given time is something like 100 trillion. And well, there's an idea that you could uh, translate if, you, if the technology is developed and it's no longer uh, theoretically impossible, it's, it's only an engineering problem, of recording the state of what is called the connectome, that means all the connections at a given moment in a person's brain. If you could record that and put it on a simulation device, uh, upload it to a computer, and have it function there, that would be a human mind. It would not be any different from a human mind. Right, and I actually mind. had a dinner, and it wasn't a particularly edifying one, given the subject of our conversation with a young man who claimed to be building um, a living brain, a replica of a living brain. So right. we're on we're on the verge of something. I mean, this is not just uh, silly French uh, postmodern chatter anymore, is it, Adam? No, I think that's right. And I think a lot of these scenarios, which people have been speculating about, especially in science fiction for really 70 or 80 years, um, are now approaching the point where they're in the headlines, they're news, they're no longer fantasies. And so while we're still not at the point of having a true artificial general intelligence that can learn any subject or can recursively improve itself, and we are still not at the point of true global climate disaster that'll wipe out the human race, both of those prospects, I think, are taken seriously now in a way that they wouldn't have been in the past. And don't some of these people have a point? I mean, we have uh, trashed up the universe, to, to, to be polite. We can use worse words, but this is a family show. Mm. I mean, do we really deserve to exist, Adam? Should we be in control? And might we indeed be that um, disappearing uh, footprint on the beach that Foucault warned us about or, or, or at least promised? Well, I think this is the point where the kinds of things that I'm talking about in the book depart from environmentalism. I think everyone's familiar with environmentalism as an idea that uh, the, the Earth has limited resources and there are the interests of other living beings need to be respected and that we have to learn to sort of live on the planet in a more responsible way. That is the message of environmentalism. It's It's been... Uh, in one way or another for generations, maybe even since the Industrial Revolution. And that is a sort of meliorist idea, the idea that we have to make things better, things can get better, we can go back to nature, we can live in a better way. Um, what I think is dawning now in the, in the Anthropocene is a more profound criticism of humanity, which is that it is the essence of humanity to uh, go too far, to usurp nature, to destroy to take over habitats. In other words, it's not a problem of what we're doing, but of what we are. And the only way to solve that is to change what we are uh, in some very profound way by ending either our civilization or, or our species being. Uh, the idea how one gets from here to there is something that these thinkers don't really talk about too much. Uh, I don't, I've not encountered anyone who, who wants to you know, kill people to reduce the population, but there are definitely people out there who say we should not have children. Uh, or very few children, that we should try to drastically reduce the number of people living on the planet, that we should do away with industrial civilization. I think those ideas are making intuitive sense to a lot more people uh, who might want to dismiss them. Yeah, some of the people you deal with in the book, I have to admit, to me, were fairly obscure, like David Benatar and Jane Bennett, who seemed sort of slightly crackpot academics. But the interesting thing is that there are some really powerful books and thinkers who are influencing enormous amounts of people like Richard Powers' Bewilderment, which I know you deal with in the book and, and Powers himself. There seems to be a, a shift in thinking where someone like Powers can become so popular. I mean, he's a very, very good writer, a fiction writer, 
Uh, and he seems to be slipping into your apocalyptic category, isn't he? I think so. I mean, the book that I talk about, the book of his that I talk about is The Overstory, which won the Pulitzer Prize, I think, in 2019. Yeah. And that the message of that book, it's a, it's a story about eco-terrorists who uh, commit a crime to protect a forest from clear-cutting. And it sort of follows all of their lives and their paths to, towards this moment, what happens to them. Um, the message of that book really is that trees are morally superior to people, that trees can do all the good things we can do, like communicate and help one another and learn. So this is, is this Karen Backer territory, although I'm not sure she makes that observation, but certainly we've got the technology now to allow us to talk to trees. Right. Uh, although the trees, well, it's not clear what we would say to them. I mean, what they can say to each other is we're look here for nutrients or, or this is where the resources are. What we want from trees is to cut them down to use as wood. So our interests are sort of basically irreconcilable. And even in a, a movie pop culture phenomenon like Avatar, Right. That, that, the message of that movie is basically where humanity goes, disaster follows. And uh, we should we should sort of limit our activity in order to preserve these other forms of life that we're destroying. Um, even there are paleontologists, uh, I discussed one in the book, who say if you look at the fossil record, you can see that 10,000 years ago, we were already causing other species to go extinct and, and altering climates and habitats. So it's not simply a matter of the latest technology or even carbon emissions. It's sort of the essence of what human nature is, is to change the world. So it, do you think that Powers has kind of lost his mind? I mean, in, in his book, Bewilderment, he he seems to suggest, I mean, it's a novel, of course, so you can always fall back on whether well, it's just fiction, but he seems to suggest to me that only autis that autistic children understand the world better than non-autistic grown-ups. This is all part of the same process, isn't it? And there's an autistic character among those in the overstory as well. I haven't read that that new Powers novel, so I won't comment. You should read it, it, but I don't, think, I don't think it will surprise you. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of these things are radicalizations of ideas that have the long history in, in modern uh, thought and literature. I mean, so the idea that children have a greater wisdom than adults. Uh, Which is Rousseau, or, I think, really, probably go back. Exactly. To yes. Or that the, the mad, the insane, see things about the world that, that ordinary people don't and have sort of privileged insight. There are, there are predecessors to those ideas. Um, but I think that What's what's different about it today is the practicality of it, the idea that these are no longer critiques of humanity from within, they're actually programs for action or predictions about the future. I mean, the, the sort of paradox is only humans have human values, only humans can judge the world and one another according to human values. So to say that the world would be better off without humans in it is is an oxymoron, or, or it's, it's self-defeating in a certain way, because you as a human are saying, uh, this is what I want. There's no way to know what other species want. There's no way to know what trees want. We can only ever really dwell within our own ideas, our own values, our own consciousness. We can't get outside of that trap. But there are people who I think would say that the best things about humanity, the things that we value the most, like our capacity for self-sacrifice or compassion or sense of justice, uh, might be dictating that we ourselves disappear. And so the ultimate humanistic act in that sense might be to end humanity. To leave the stage. Are you suggesting, Adam, then, that for the crowd that you write about, it's very hard to have a, shall we say, and I use this word carefully, a scientific argument or conversation about the environment. We've had a lot of shows about whether or not the market is suitable to generate the kinds of tech, whether it's 
wind or solar to fix the environment. But you seem to be suggesting that this issue, particularly when it comes to climate, the environment, other species, it's not a scientific conversation. It's a, it's a metaphysical one, and it's rooted in, in, a, in, a, in a form of species self-hatred. I think that's right. I mean, I'm not a, a scientist. I'm a humanist. I, I write about literature, and I'm approaching these ideas from that sort of philosophical point of view. So uh, no one, of course, actually knows what is going to happen in 50 years. There are all kinds of points of view about how the environment will proceed or at what rate we will invent artificial intelligence. Some people think it could happen tomorrow. Others think it will take generations, um, although I think most computer scientists believe that it can and will happen. Um, the the question really is how do we feel about this you know what does it mean and one of the things i say in the book is that even if none of these scenarios actually come true they're still significant because they're expressions of changing ideas about our place in the world and those have very important implications for society and culture and politics economics so there are all kinds of ways that this revolt against humanity can have real world effects short of you know the actual disappearance of humanity um, to focus for a minute on the on the transhumanists a lot of uh, transhumanists who are often, you know, very enamored of technology, sometimes they are themselves high-tech uh, innovators or entrepreneurs or are sponsored by such people. Um, for them, humanity is too limited. In other words, the, power, the problem isn't that we have too much power, but that we don't have enough power and that we will never be able to do some of the things that transhumanists yeah. believe it's our destiny to do. Like, and isn't there a sort of an element of Nietzscheanism in, in transhumanism? Well, there is. I mean, Nietzsche famously said that we're, humanity is, is like a rope stretched between the god and the animal. And so the idea that we could sort of walk forward on that rope to achieve actual godhood, for Nietzsche, that was a, a sort of philosophical idea that meant changing your state of mind, changing the way we think about things, going beyond good and evil. But transhumanists think it might be actually changing our physical bodies so that we could, for example, uh, become immortal. You would never have to die a natural death or you would never get sick or you would be able to think many times faster and better than any human being is able to think now. Um, so that really uh, is, uh, is... That's Wylian territory. We actually had uh, a few years ago when this show was on TechCrunch, we had the immortal Ray Kurzweil or the wannabe immortal Ray Kurzweil on our show. He didn't seem very immortal, I have to say. Right. And, and I do talk about him in the book. He's someone who has written that he doesn't intend to die, that there are... I mean, in all seriousness, Adam, and it's hard hmm. to be serious about this. I mean, if people like Kurzweil, they mean they're just idiots, aren't they? I mean, should we in any way take them seriously? I don't think that Ray Kurzweil is going to have his hope come true. I mean, in, in one of his books, he writes about all the measures he's taking, like taking 200 vitamins a day um, in order to live long enough to the point where technology will end death. And there are, he's not the only one. There are other people who say- Yeah, you know, we've had lots of people. It's You're in New York. I'm out here. There are lots of people right. wandering around the street with that Kurzweilian hope of immortality. Right. And, and I don't think that that's happening anytime soon. I don't think anyone would claim that it is. However, the idea that you could at some point transport your mind, translate your mind into a more durable format, I think that is a possibility. I well, don't think sort that of is... uploading it to some universal server of some sort. Exactly. And and as this technology improves and improves, our lives have already changed in, in many ways. For me, one of the things that made me want to write this book was seeing in the pandemic how much of life could so easily stop happening in the physical world and go online. I mean, in a way, we already spend much of our lives, much of what we think about and do is happening virtually. So 
from there to actually put your, your brain itself on the computer instead of just sitting and looking at the computer might be just a matter of degree. One of the people you write about in the book is Nick Bostrom, professor of philosophy and other things at Oxford University. One of the people who suggests that we might all be living in a computer simulation. So questioning perhaps uh, the ontological truth of human existence itself. Do you touch on this in the revolt against humanity? Are there some people like Bostrom who would say that there, there was and never is humanity, that we all exist in some sort of simulation? I, I do talk about Bostrom in the book. I don't talk about his simulation theory. Um, I chose not to get into that particular area, but I do find it fascinating because really what it is is a way of restating in 21st century metaphors or technological language, a very old insight, which is that there is more to reality than we know and can experience, that there's there are levels of reality beyond our understanding. Uh, that idea, I think, has always been part of the human imagination back to ancient times. Uh, you know, life is a dream. Uh, Shakespeare has has similar sayings. I mean, go back to Plato, to his cave. I mean, that's the, the exactly. beginning and the end. I mean, I'm not sure if anyone said anything that different from Exactly. So, so the idea that everything that we perceive is in some sense an illusion or that there is some kind of being that is more real than the being that we have is at the basis of a lot of philosophy and religion. Um, the idea that that means it's running on a, a computer is an idea that you couldn't have had until the invention of computers. But I think that the, it's a new way of putting an old insight. I mean, we can mock this stuff, and I, I think I'm probably in your camp, Adam, when it comes to skepticism. But on the other hand, there are some very serious writers, very credible writers who you address, like Ian McEwan. I'm not sure if you do you talk about uh, Ishiguro in the book, because I thought his book, um, Clara and the Sun, was a, was a very um, credible attempt to make sense of a world where it will be increasingly hard to distinguish between computers and humans. I mean, that's a reality, isn't it? It's not just the invention of, of crackpot technologists or academics. No, I think that we could, we all see it in our actual everyday lives that uh, more and more things that we would have said could only be done by humans increasingly can be done by computers. And as computers get better at using language, for example, there's no reason why they won't be able to talk to us, console us, you know, write poetry for us, anything... Uh, that involves language can be done by a computer. Uh, once the engineering is there, your computer will be able to comfort you and, and hold you and, and have sex with you. All the is things it that good language? I mean, I, I remember reading an excellent piece by you in the New Yorker on Wittgenstein on his mm. philosophy of language. Are, are we close to, I mean, you mentioned the Turing test earlier. Turing was, I think, a contemporary of Wittgenstein at Cambridge. I think they may have crossed paths at some point in very different worlds. What is the fate of language in all this? Well, you mentioned Ian McEwen. In his book, uh, Machines Like Me, he has the story in, in set an alternate timeline in which uh, Alan Turing, who in real life committed suicide in the 1950s, uh, lived and helped invent artificial intelligence on a much sooner timeline. So it's a story set in the 80s in Margaret Thatcher's England in which there are already androids, basically, uh, fully intelligent, simulated human beings. And the narrator of the book is a man who's in love with a woman. He buys one of these androids and the android falls in love with the woman as well. And 
it sort of plays out from there. And in the end, the human is forced to admit that what the android is feeling is every bit as real as what he feels, that there's no basis for saying a machine can't feel a certain way, can't feel love, can't feel passion. Um, and that's the idea of the title, Machines Like Me. One of the things that the android says in the book is that in the future when uh, artificial intelligence is, is standard, there will be no more literature because literature is about how people don't understand each other. It's a tool for helping people understand each other despite gaps and miscommunications. And so when AIs have a, a perfect understanding of one another, they won't need literature. So for a writer like Ian McEwan, that's obviously not a very happy prospect, but he doesn't look at it with, with terror or dread or moralizing. He sort of contemplates it as a possible future. And uh, I think it is possible things like that uh, will happen, yeah. And, and what about Ishiguro in Clara and the Sun, the idea of computers being more empathetic, where the E word comes up endlessly uh, in our conversations on tech and humanity, the idea that computers can or can't be empathetic, the idea that what distinguishes us as a species is our ability to empathize. What do you make of all that? Right. Well, it is a, it is a big um, issue. In fact, uh, Michael Graziano, the Princeton neuroscientist, has written about this recently. Uh, does a computer understand what it means for other people to have minds? If you're a computer mind, you understand what it means for a human to have a human mind. Um, the truth is, I think that if a computer had a true mind, there's no reason why it wouldn't have as much or as little empathy as human beings have for one another, which obviously varies a lot from person to person. And with Yeah, I mean, my wife says I have no empathy, Adam. I may need to learn it from a computer. Exactly. It could tutor us. So, in fact, what happens at the end of, of the McEwen novel, not to spoil it, this is a spoiler alert, is that um, there's been a limited number of these androids manufactured as a sort of pilot program, and they all end up committing suicide because they're appalled at how evil human beings are and how terrible it is in, in the human world. So the implication is that, you know, they are actually much better than us, and they can't understand how we live in the way we do. Uh I think once you accept the basic materialist premise that there's nothing supernatural about human consciousness, that it is in, in some way, although we don't understand exactly how, produced by the activity in our brain, then there's no reason to think that you couldn't produce the same kinds of thoughts and experiences in another medium. So is there a call to action in the book? Do we return to, uh, to Hobbes or to some other physiological humanism? What are we supposed to do in the midst of all this profound change? There's not a call to action in the book. I, I sort of deliberately did not want to... You probably don't have one because none of us do. Isn't that true? Right, exactly. I think that what, what is going to happen is what traditionally has happened with every other technology, which is that the technology will emerge and then we will have to learn to cope with it. Uh, and, and try but to figure this, out. I mean, we always have this conversation. People say, well, we had the machines and we got over that. And then we had television and we got, and everyone said that was going to be the end of the world. And we got over that. Is it possible, Adam, that this is our final chapter? The AI is, as one author remarked, our last invention? I think it is. I think it is possible. I, it's one of those things that uh, is very hard to think about in truly concrete terms. Uh, and in fact, some of the writers I write about in the book talk about this, how whenever the subject comes up, we're sort of uh, habitually, we take a, a skeptical or mocking or incredulous attitude because these ideas just sort of don't fit into our worldview. They don't, it's hard to make sense of them. But I think it is certainly possible that, it, that at some point, 
probably not within my lifetime, but maybe, and certainly at some point, we will have computer intelligences, artificial intelligences that are equal to us in complexity. And then really the question, which is what, what's called the alignment problem in AI research. Right, we've done we, a whole show on the alignment problem. In, right, in, how do we get those things Alignment, to, not enlightenment. Right. How do we align their interests with ours is the problem. And some of the people I write about raise a good point, which is if a mind is a mind, then a mind of a machine would presumably have the same validity, the same sovereignty as a mind of a human being. So what right would we have to keep it in alignment with our uh, needs? Wouldn't that be like slavery or imprisonment? Uh, Nick Bostrom, to go back to him, says, if you had a conscious computer, a conscious AI, and you rebooted it, would that be like killing it? And and you can reboot a computer millions of times as much as you want. Would that be like killing it a million times? Uh, I mean, that sort of thing sounds like science fiction, but as he puts it, his work, he calls his work philosophy with a deadline, because he says, uh, at some point, we are actually going to have to deal with those problems in the real world. And isn't augmented reality, not virtual reality, which of course, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is bet on, but isn't augmented reality the idea that our bodies are going to get mixed up with computers, that we will eventually have chips inserted in us? We're beginning to do this already. If you go to tech conferences, there's always someone there with a chip claiming that they're already somewhat of a computer. Isn't that an inevitability too? Sure. Yes, I think so. And in fact, I talk in the book about the idea of cyborgs, which is an idea that started in science fiction and uh, sort of went into philosophy and other kinds of theory and, and has a whole academic history behind it at this point. But uh, one of the, the points about cyborgs is that many people are already cyborgs in the sense that they have artificial machines in their bodies. I mean, you mentioned my glasses. Uh, humans have always used tools on the outside of their bodies. Now we have tools that go on the inside of our bodies, like a pacemaker uh, or a, a screws to, to secure a broken bone. And if you were to go one step further and have, say, nanorobots, which haven't been actually invented yet, but are on the agenda for a lot of research that could circulate in your bloodstream and, and undo cell damage so that, for example, you would never develop cancer. Um, that seems like something quite different than wearing glasses, but maybe it's just uh, another level of the same thing. Maybe it's just our technology uh, becoming more and more powerful. Yeah, now you're beginning to sound like Ray Kurzweil. Um, right, exactly. That's his... Uh, yeah. F finally, I mean, this is really important and serious stuff. I, I hope I'm being serious enough, uh, Adam. When is this going to play out in the real world? When, I mean, at the moment we're in a, the American uh, political system where we still obsess with you know, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, all this nonsense. These are, whether or not you believe in the, whether they're existential or not, these are enormously complicated and important issues for us as a species. When will they start manifesting themselves in politics, in choice, in political parties, in making sense of how we're going to live our lives in the future? I, I get into this a bit at the end of the book. I think that already it's starting certainly with some environmental issues uh, to become real political issues. And I, th I think that as the younger generation who has been raised in an atmosphere of climate crisis uh, gets older and, and begins to occupy positions of power, people of the Greta Thunberg generation, um, I can very easily see divisions that, that mirror the ones that we have now between, say, people who trust science and people who don't trust science. So if, if there's a, a class of people who says science tells us we must stop having children or, or at most one, 
then people who don't accept the authority of science or, or and have other belief systems that say that it's good to have children, uh, for example, religious people, um, that sort of battle could very easily echo the battle between you know vaccine believers and vaccine deniers during COVID, except much more powerful because many more people and, and deeper interests will be at stake. So I think that those issues uh, will become more and more important. I mean, the tricky thing, of course, is that it doesn't, it's not like the whole world stops and says, now we will discuss right. and solve these issues. I mean, we've been through this before with industrialization. We had a, a, a fin de siècle crisis of anxiety that uh, met, metastasized into fascism and communism. Presumably the same thing will happen in the 21st century and we barely scrape the surface of it. Uh, well, I mean, we can hope that it won't be quite as bad as the 20th century. But yes, I think that there will always be these kinds of conflicts. And whenever you have conflicts over issues like the future of the human race, where everything is really at stake, there's the potential for, for real deep, uh, lasting and even violent conflict.